Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Dharma Doors. I'm MC Owens. Um, this is actually our second uh, class on this sutra, but if you weren't here, as always, don't worry, because we're going to go over some things. Um, this sutra that we're talking about tonight is translated as the demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood. And one of the things that I mentioned last time, if you weren't here, um, is that this sutra, so this is what would be called a Mahayana Sutra, right, coming to us from a slightly later point in <laughs> Buddhist history, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this distinction between early Buddhism and later Buddhism, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but one of the things that I said last week was that if you're familiar with what would be called Theravada Buddhism and the Pali Canon, there's a lot of time spent in those sutras of that tradition and a lot of time spent in the Theravada tradition as a whole that are about these meditative states eventually moving through some what are called uh, uh, realms of form, these jhanas or dhyanas, and then into these formless realms, infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, the state of neither perception or non-perception. And the idea is that In the Theravada tradition, to reach this state of neither perception nor non-perception, the outer limits of the perception of reality, like, that was it. That's like, I mean, there's a slightly further place to go, but that's, like, that's the intensity of the Theravada. And what I mentioned last week is that this sutra, and in a way the Mahayana, starts there. So it's in a way not about building up to this exalted state of neither perception or non-perception. That's the starting bid for where we are to go. And what I mean by that is, is that this sutra, by its title, is telling you, oh, you want to know about Buddhahood? Oh, okay. And that's sort of a different question about Buddhahood. Okay, so this is the demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood. I also mentioned last week that the actual Chinese title of the sutra from which it's being translated is this Shen De Tenzijin, this uh, Saguna Deva Sutra. Saguna is a god. And so it's actually his sutra. This sutra is for his benefit. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's where we're at. I'm actually going to just kind of rewind entirely. I have a couple of ideas I want to introduce first, and then I think I might just read the sutra from the top. We didn't get that far along. We also stopped and started and stopped and started, and so I thought it would be cool to talk about sort of just one idea with a few facets, and then we'll dive back into the sutra. As always, if anybody has questions, ideas, comments, epiphanies, realizations, you feel free um, and let it be heard. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Come on in. So something I didn't mention last week that I I probably should have. I kind of wasn't sure how far we were going to get last week. This sutra talks about 
a distinction that's made between what are called shravakas, voice hearers, and pratekya buddhas, solitary buddhas. They're also going to be obviously talking about our bodhisattvas, like Manjushri, our buddhas in the making, a being of enlightenment, a bodhisattva, who's bound for Buddhahood. So the bodhisattva and the Buddha are bound up in a relationship. But before we talk about the inconceivable state of Buddhahood, this sutra is going to be drawing on this distinction, and in a way, it kind of assumes that you know this, and some of you may already know this, but if you don't, it's helpful to know what this distinction is. So you don't really see this in the Theravada tradition, but it is, again, part of the Mahayana tradition, which is that there's a word for these, oh, sometimes they're called arahats, but an arahat is actually an exalted state of being, the the state of being a worthy one. That's what an arahat is, worthy one. Uh, Technically worthy of offerings. So we're talking about an Indian culture. Uh, I had my timeline up last week to show you that this sutra is claiming to be from the life of the Buddha, 500 BC. And so at that time, to be a Buddhist was to be a monk, a renunciant, celibate, homeless, wanderer, meditator. And if you moved up this kind of hierarchy of being a stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, After enough practice, you could reach this exalted state of one worthy of offerings, meaning that you could sit there with the bowl and beg for food, and if people gave you something, it was good for them. You were an arhat. You were a worthy one, worthy of offerings. Um, So in the Mahayana tradition, these early followers of the Buddha, the monks, the nuns, those bound for arhathood or who were arhats, they become known as shravakas, and it's a word that's used in the Theravada, but in the Mahayana, it has a slightly different twist. Uh, the word shravaka literally means to hear a voice, uh, vachvaka, shravacha there. So there's a long history of shravaka, of voice hearing, and I'm not going to go too into depth because I want to obviously not talk about this all night, but there was an idea that uh, what, what a voice hearer meant was maybe you heard the voice of the Buddha, you heard the call, you liked the Dharma, you thought, yeah, that's you know, what the Buddha is talking about. It's good to me. I'll be a follower of the Buddha. He told me to meditate like this. I will do what the Buddha said. He told me to do this. I will do what he said. The idea is, is that what happens is that, and again, if I had my timeline up, it would be helpful even though this claims to be from the life of the Buddha, 500 BC, a sutra like this is probably really honestly representative of a tradition that was probably three or 400 years after the Buddha. And what happens in that three or 400 years after the lifetime of the Buddha from, from the perspective of the scholar historian who has their scholar historian glasses on, it seems that that initial Buddhist movement of meditate, calm down, be released from suffering, 
that that movement seems to have grown, gotten really big, gotten rather hierarchical, developed a lot of kind of institutional problems like any church, like any religion. It seems to have developed some problems. Um, and ultimately, this tradition that we're looking at tonight, this Mahayana tradition, is in a way going to be critiquing the Shravaka Yana. And so you've seen, I, I've put all the little monks, Shibuti the Wise and all of his buddies, I put them in this Yana, in a boat or a raft. This is a very traditional Buddhist imagery for the Yana, like the Mahayana, the great vehicle. This is sometimes called the Hinayana, the little vehicle, the little boat. And so the critique of the little boat, the critique of the Shravaka path, well, there are so many critiques that it, it starts to, uh, you can really start to develop a sense of what the problem was. On the one hand, they're critiqued as voice hearers, meaning followers, not doers. So there's that initial interesting thing in Buddhism is that they actually start saying, like, if you're really just following this, like you're just going along, but you're not really doing it, don't, don't even bother. So there seems to have been a little bit of that. Um, the larger critique of the Shravaka path is that the people following this path, they're suffering. They hear the Buddha's Dharma and they're like, yeah, I am suffering. Oh, really? It's being caused by my clinging and attachment? Oh, I'm going to work on that. They work on their clinging and attachment. They let go of all their clinging and attachment and no longer suffer and are, not, and are in a state of nirvana. And now they're worthy of offerings. And that's the end of it. That's the path. What's, how about you and your suffering? How about you and your suffering? Sorry, I'm working on my own here. That's the critique of the Shravakayana, that it always remains within the karmic axis of the self and the alleviation of suffering for the self. All sentient beings, all that, that's somebody else's problem. Yeah, Are the uh, Theravada Sutras self-aware of this distance between the so-called Arhats or Shravakas and the Buddha? They are. That's a great question, Eric. So in this, or even in the early tradition, they are very clear that the Buddha, Shakyamuni, Gautama, is a unique, extraordinary being that within the Theravada tradition, Buddhas, fully enlightened beings, come around only once very, 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 very rarely. In fact, it's been several eons since the last Buddha appeared, and it will be several more eons until the next one appears, according to the Shavaka, according to the Theravada path. So this exalted state of the great teacher, the great illuminator that comes into the world every now and then, that's a Theravada idea that, yes, pits the Arhat against the Buddha in that way. That the Arhat is understood to be the best hope on earth in that sense. Yep. But again, this critique of them being a little too kind of like self-helpy, just interested in their own self. Um, also, you should know that the critique of the small vehicle is actually a, a nod or a tip of the hat to exactly how difficult the renunciatory path is, meaning it's not for everybody to renounce fully 
become celibate, homeless, impoverished in that sense. So the Shravaka, while they are considered to be noble, worthy, wise, and all of that, Buddhism kept going. And again, I want to mention that some of the critique of the Shravakayana, the Shravaka path or Theravada path, another critique seems to be that they were very puritanical, or at least had become very puritanical, meaning they developed a very deep sense of the, like, the naughty no-no-ness of sex and the naughty no-no-ness of certain things of this world. And so in that way, started to become very kind of consumed with notions of purity and impurity. This is also another problem that religions seem to go through. And out of that pure, impure problem, wouldn't you know it, arises this problem of the impurity of women. And all of a sudden, the nuns have to walk behind the more pure males, and the nuns have to bow to the more pure males. It starts to get bad and complicated. And so this movement of the bodhisattva, the movement of all of this comes out of what seems to have been some, you know, after, again, after a few hundred years, some institutional, philosophical, whatever problems of this religion called Buddhism at that time. Everybody have a kind of a sense of the Shravaka path? Some traditions, they like really put down the Shravakas, like really put them down. Other, school, other schools of thought, including my own, is the one that kind of says, you know, that's a really difficult path. That's a very hard path. Yet something a little more universally applicable to all sentient beings, right? <laughs> so that's sort of where I'm at. I'm not so hard on the Shravakas. And you'll notice in this sutra, they're not really super hard on them, but they are in a class to themselves, I should mention that the Shravaka Yana, the Shravaka vehicle, rides the waves of the Eightfold Path founded on the Four Noble Truths. That that's sort of what they're about. Suffering, the origin of suffering, and the alleviation of suffering, and the Eightfold Path that leads to the alleviation of suffering for the self, for the individual. This sutra, like all Mahayana sutras, eventually winds up mentioning this elusive character called the Pratekya Buddha. Right? This Pratekya Buddha, or solitary Buddha, as he is called, is, a, is an interesting figure within the world of Buddhism. There's papers, dissertations that have been written on this figure, so. I'm, all, all, as always, going to try to distill that down into one clean definition. Very difficult to do. But the idea of, in Buddhism is that this, this noble truth of suffering, the noble truth in particular of dependent origination, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, these truths, these dharmas of the Buddha or that the Buddha talked about, they're considered to be just true. <laughs> like not true because he said it, but true because it's what's going on. And so the possibility of realizing these truths is available for all, always, at every moment. And so there is this discourse in Buddhism where they talk about the solitary enlightened being who they're out, they're on a hike, they're out in the woods, and they come to these great realizations about the deep interconnectedness of everything and about emptiness and about suffering and its cause and all of that, and they become 
totally enlightened Buddhas. And then there John Muir up in their tree being a Buddha. Not suffering, doing their due. But like the lone horn of a rhinoceros, is they, they say, that's the say. But the lo- like the lone horn of a rhinoceros, they are just that, alone. In particular, of importance is that they do not have a system. They don't come back with a system and they're like, all right, everybody, you don't understand. It's all really connected. We're all suffering because we don't really understand it. And here's my system to explain it all. The Buddha had a system, Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, Twelve Link Chain of Causes. He had systems up the wazoo. So the idea is, is that, yes, this stuff is true. It's available to realize at any moment, and it often is realized. But what makes a Buddha Buddha a Buddha is that they come back into the world and explain it to others. Solitary Buddha, you'll see, he's like, peace, I'm out. I'm on my boat, headed to nirvana, just me. So now we have a a small bow with a bunch of monks and nuns that'll get you there, but it's hard. Then there's just the solitary Buddha in his own little boat, like, good luck, everybody. All right. Now, what makes a Pratekya Buddha, a Pratekya Buddha in particular, in in many ways, it's what makes a Buddha a Buddha, and it's what makes kind of a Bodhisattva a Bodhisattva, or at least it's something that the Bodhisattva is interested in is this de- idea of dependent origination, right? Pratitya samutpata, codependent arising, codependent origination. There's a million different ways to translate this idea of dependent origination, pratitya samutpata. And there is a chart of these 12 links that, that explain it. But if you really fully understand dependent origination, that is said to be Bodhi, enlightenment. And if you really fully, fully, fully understood this, you would be, in a way, by definition, a Pratekya Buddha. And then, depending on what you did then, you might be a real Buddha or just a solitary Buddha. So here's the quick lesson in dependent origination. And I'm adding, by anybody, I don't want any eyes rolling, because you've seen this one, because I'm going to add a twist to it tonight. So here's a quick lesson in dependent origination, this core Buddhist idea that if you get this, it's actually even better than a Shravaka. It's what makes you a Pratekya Buddha, all right? So I have this. So just this lower quadrant here. Please ignore the other marks on the whiteboard. Let's talk about this and what it is, right? Any guesses so far, right? So I have written on the whiteboard a red line. And I ask you, what is that red line? And the idea is is that if I were to do this next to it, I put a curved line. I put a curved line next to the straight line. Now that I've put the curved line next to the straight line, do you have a better sense of what the straight line is? Right? You might be tempted to say it's the letter I because it's next to the letter S. Right? So if you all went to the same elementary school that I went to, that's how it it works. Right? Now, 
the thing about this relationship between the quote letter I and the quote letter S is that, well, here's the magic trick. If you've never seen this magic trick, it's good. The magic trick is going to happen in your mind. So pay, play, pay very close attention to your mind, right? Watch the letter I. Watch it really carefully. Is it still the letter I? Is it still the letter I? Right? So if you're playing along at home, and I've drawn this little extra line to my curved line, making it, quote, the number eight, that all of a sudden turns this into the number one. But wait a minute. I thought you said it was the letter I. Get your story straight. Is it the letter I, or is it the number? First, tell me if it's a letter or a number. Then we'll talk about which ones, right? Now, this little game of back and forth here is an example of dependent origination, meaning that what your mind, what you think this is, is dependent upon what's next to it. And depending on whether it's a number or depending on whether it's a letter will inform your mind about the meaning or significance of this other line. So they're going back and forth. The magic, the mystery of dependent origination is to understand that it is not the number eight that makes that the number one. Because this quote number one is equally making that a number eight. That's dependent origination when they are co-producing each other. Not one creating the other, but them co-producing one another simultaneously. Everybody following me on this? This is the nature of dependent origination, that nothing stands alone in this universe being what it is. It is always going to be dependent upon, at the end of the day, all other phenomena, actually. But right up until all other phenomena, it's going to be dependent on what it's next to. So how does that connect to the 12 links of the chains? Let me, let me tell you. <laughs> so I've written here on the board as well these ideas that keep popping up, which are these are the three realms, the realm of desire, the realm of form, and the formless realm. I mentioned them at the opening of the Dharma talk. I mentioned them again. The Buddhists, of course, see our experience of this world as happening sort of in these three sheaths, if you will, or dimensions, spheres, datus. And the idea here is, is that the realm of desire is this realm in which we're sort of like mentally projecting our desires and wants out onto the world and then getting it right back. And we actually think we're moving in a world of objects and things and all of that when we're actually kind of moving in a world of our own desires and wants for how we would like the world to be, want it to be, and all of that. If one can clar clarify their mind through the meditation process, one can eventually transcend the realm of desire and enter into just the realm of form. No projection of use value, aesthetic value, no projection onto anything, just the realm of form. To use my example here of the number one and the number eight or the letter I and the letter S, 
insofar as these are letters or numbers, that's all the realm of desire. The realm of meaning-making and significance in that sense is all the realm of desire. Because this, these are just red lines on a board. That's, at the end of the day, that's kind of, well, not the end of the day, but before that, it, that's what they are, just red lines on a board. Numbers and letters, that's all on you. That's all on your training, your mind, right? So realm of desire is dependently originated, as I just mentioned, through this back and forth game of meaning and significance of everything. But what happens when we move into the realm of just pure form? What about dependent origination then? Right? This is going to link to our 12 links, or at least I'm going to explain the 12 links of the chain in a moment. But it will relate to that. So here's the other magic trick of dependent origination. So the magic of this being a letter and a number and all that, that's one thing. How does the realm of pure form work in terms of dependent origination? Well, I'll show you. You guys see it? Right? Not quite, right? You, you see that, but this, not so much, right? Well, once we're out of the realm of meaning and significance, you have to understand that literally this ink is dependent on the whiteboard because when I don't have the whiteboard, guess what? Guess what? You see what I'm saying? So this, like, remember, we're done with letters and numbers, right? We're, we're just talking about our so-called physical reality here, right? The reason why it won't work here is it has nothing to depend on. This is dependent origination, too. I know this seems like, what is he even talking about? It seems so basic. Like, yeah, the ink is, like, it's not sliding off. It's on it. It's dependent, dependent upon it. You guys see what I'm saying? So at the end of the day, this dependency, dependency in terms of meaning, dependency in terms of physical reality dependency, it's all the same in terms of all things being dependent on something else to exist. This, my wonderful, beautiful painting of the letter I and the letter S is dependent on this whiteboard. I just showed you how I need it. Yes? I'm curious if this kind of falls into the same category of what you're talking about now in terms of... Um, well, I'll explain it to you. When you drew the line, I was like, well, it's either a line or a plane. Because I practiced architecture for so many years. And so representation, how does representation sort of fit? I mean, representation is a form, mm -hmm. right? So is, and that was dependent on my experience in my past. So is that sort of the same kind of relationship as the two... You know, the straight line and the squiggly line, is that still the same? Yes. Okay. The representation would still be in the realm of desire and this realm of meaning and significance and meaning making and just like sense, making sense of this. But 
what I want you to, to, to think about is how the, the relationship between these things and what they mean and represent is dependent on a bunch of stuff. It's dependent on my brain. It's dependent on my conditioning. It's dependent on a bunch of stuff. But even this physical reality we live in, everything is dependent on something to exist. You're dependent on food and air to exist. Everything is dependent on something else. So this vast interconnected world of dependencies in which all things are dependent on all other things to be what they are. That's dependent origination, and there is a chart of these 12 links that break this down into, well, if you think of this whiteboard and the ink, and that the ink sticks to it, is dependent on it, in the same way, our brains are like a whiteboard on which ideas stick to, are dependent on. Sensory information is dependent on, meaning that if you didn't have eyeballs, you wouldn't be having this visual, this visual experience. Your visual experience is dependent upon the eyeball in that sense. Everybody following me? This, it's like, it's very hard to describe, but it's at the root and heart of everything, which is that all things are dependent upon all other things to be what they are in a vast, vastly complicated way. Meaning that it's like, it includes you, it includes your, your thinking about those things, that's interdependent, but also just the notion of something being, say, a book is dependent on the idea of words, language, paper, the letters are on the paper, so the interdependence just keeps going and going and going. So to see the world in terms of interdependence, that would make you a Pratekya Buddha. If you were to do, if that was it, you were just like, oh, I see it all interconnected in that way. Everybody with me? This is not about being a Shravaka or being a Pratekya Buddha. This is about, the question is, no, no, what about Buddhahood? What about Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, the highest exalted state of enlightenment? What about that? <laughs> All right? So that, yeah, so that realm and the, the heart of the sutra that we're going to talk about for the next hour is founded on this opposition between this idea of the conditioned and the unconditioned. And in a way, well, let's hold off on those words right now and let's focus on this very important idea of emptiness. Because if you understand uh, everything I just said and emptiness, we'll be good to go. We'll be good to go on this sutra. So... I have one more magic trick example. I used it last week quickly, but I'm going to use it again. And it's this one, that one. So we're going to be talking about that, that guy. Right? So does everybody see the shadow of my finger on the wall? Anybody see that? Right? So... Let's talk about the shadow of my finger on the wall. 
right? So I joked last week of like, oh, look at the dependently originated object on the wall. Indeed, it is a dependently originated object on the wall. You could not have that shadow without the finger, without the surface, and without the light. Totally dependently, hey, look, another example of the Buddha being right again. It's dependently originated, right? But now, to talk about this idea of emptiness and to talk about what the sutra is going to get at, which is that all phenomena are empty, that the nature, the bottom underlying nature of all phenomena is that it's empty. Nothing going on there. There's actually nothing, not anything there, actually. Right? And so, we'll go back. Look at There's the shadow of my finger, right? So the question is, what is the relationship between that thing on the wall and this? Are they the same thing or are they two different things? Are they the same thing or are they two different things? It's a simple question, folks. They're two different things. So you're, you're going you're gonna to step up and say that that thing on the wall is something that is not this. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. So let's talk about the nature of that thing on the wall. Right? Because the idea here is, is that that thing on the wall, it has a deep, deep... A relationship to that other thing, right? I mean, we're yeah. talking... Uh, yeah. It, yeah, it gets really crazy, right? So, I'm not going to actually go much further with this example, of this particular one. But the next thing to think of, so if you're like, oh, well, well, maybe, maybe it's your finger. Like, it's not your finger, but it is your finger, right? Well... And you would say that, right, because I couldn't have that thing on the wall without this. Because, watch, bye. <laughs> right? So, there is this deep relationship between that thing on the wall and this. But I'll tell you what, you cut those lights, you are not going to have a shadow anymore. And my finger's going to be up here all day, and you won't have a shadow. So now, all of a sudden, I'll ask you, is this part of that... Are they one and the same, or are they different? And then, of course, our third culprit here, the wall, that it is somehow made of wall, because just like the red ink, I could have the light, I could have the finger, but if I had no wall there, no shadow. So now, all of a sudden, that crazy thing on the wall is dependently originated based on my finger, which of which it has this really intimate relationship with, but it is not it. It has that same intimate relationship with that thing, but it is not it. And of course, it's entirely dependent upon this other thing, of which it kind of, because shadows, at least that shadow, isn't it kind of made of wall? I mean, I don't want to get all Banksy on you, but it's kind of the art of the shadow is kind of made of wall, right? What this is all doing is pushing up against 
the, well, okay, okay, then just tell, tell me this then. What is the nature of that thing on the wall? And the idea of all of this little mind game, mind exercises, is that you are to arrive at that it has an empty nature. It unto itself is, it, it isn't. It is a weird dependently originated object that is somehow my finger, but not the finger and the light, but not my light in the wall, but not the wall. But it is a confluence of all of those things, right? You know, that subtle realm, that right there, right? And, and by the way, you know, I say this often, when, you, when you're up against this idea of emptiness and you're like, wait a minute, does he mean what I think he means? When one has a realization of emptiness, these things in this world do not turn into little puffs of smoke and disappear. <laughs> when their empty nature is revealed, it is just like a, a dream that one becomes lucid in. You just, it's like, oh, Oh, that's what's going on here. Emptiness does not mean boop, 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 everything disappears into some black void that it already is. It's about the real nature of things as being dependently originated in that way. So everybody with me on this? So there's continuity between all the ideas I just laid out, which is why this is all Buddhism. But if you know that there are these oppositions going on between monks who are pretty smart, but they're kind of still in their thing, these enlightened beings who understand a lot of what I just talked about, but then just float off into their own world thinking about it, and then these bodhisattvas that are in the business of helping us out. And that's where we get to this demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood. Because what we are about to witness... <laughs> is a demonstration of the inconceivable state of Buddhahood, right? Meaning that the way this sutra works is that we are to understand, thus have I heard, once the Buddha was dwelling in the garden of Anatha Pindika in the Jetta Grove near Shravasti, and the Buddha was accompanied by 1,000 monks, 10,000 bodhisattvas, and many gods of the realm of desire and the realm of form. And at that time, Bodhisattva, the great being, Mahasattva, named Manjushri, Bodhisattva of wisdom, and the god Saguna were both present among the assembly. The world-honored one, the Buddha, told Manjushri, you should explain the profound state of Buddhahood for all the celestial beings and the bodhisattvas in the assembly. It's a great idea. Manjushri said to the Buddha, so be it. World honored one, if good men and good women wish to know the state of Buddhahood, they should know that it is not a state of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind. Nor is it a state of material forms, sounds, scents, tastes, textures, or even mental objects. World-honored one, the non-state is the state of Buddhahood. This being the case, what is the state of supreme enlightenment 
as attained by the Buddha? So that's the question. Interestingly, the Buddha asks, asks Manjushri, Hey, Manjushri, why don't you tell everybody what Buddhahood is? Manjushri says, well, it is not a conditioned state. It is not a state of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind. It's not a state of physical forms, auditory forms, sense, smells, tactility, or even mentation, mental thought. Nothing to do with any of that. That non-state that has nothing to do with any of that, that's Buddhahood. So there's a way in which Manjushri's question is just purely in the negative. He's just said, well, it's not this, not that, not that. That's what the state of Buddhahood is. Not that, not that, not that. So it's actually kind of in, in, in due course, in proper form, that then Manjushri should say, this being the case, what is, not what isn't, what is the supreme enlightenment, the Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi of the Buddha? And the Buddha said, it is a state of emptiness because all views are equal. It is a state of signlessness because all signs are equal. It is a state of wishlessness because the three realms are equal. And it is the state of non-action because all actions are equal. It is the state of the unconditioned because all conditioned things are equal. So, anything jump out? Anybody real quick? This idea of conditioned, unconditioned, we've been talking about it all night, but I want to just introduce a quick idea. So this sutra that we're reading tonight is being translated from Chinese. And that makes it interesting, actually, because the Chinese have some really interesting words for these ideas of conditioned and unconditioned. There's an interesting character uh, pronounced Wei. And it means, uh, it's one of those, I mean, all languages have them. You know, there are these weird, weird, like a grammar word where it's, you know, really hard to define because it's a grammatical word, not a noun, not an adjective. It's like, but for all intents and purposes, it means to cause something to, and then whatever verb or adjective goes around this, it would be to cause it to be read, to make it do this or something like that, right? In the Chinese, how they do unconditioned is they say uh, this no way. No way. No way. Now it this in, this character it's interesting because it doesn't mean uh, not it it kind of means un or without and the reason why I mention this is that the whole Tao Te Ching if you're into Taoism and Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching he's spending all day talking about Wu Wei the 
the actionless action kind of an idea. And so it's interesting that these uh, uh, Buddhists in China, they chose this term for the unconditioned, without cause, wu wei. So versus everything being weighed, everything being weighed by something else, caused by something else, the unconditioned is that which has no cause, has no dependency, is dependent on nothing, comes from nothing, goes nowhere, is way. And this kind of corresponds to this idea of no action. There being no causation in that way. Right? Everybody kind of comfortable with the idea of conditioned and unconditioned? You know, I just went off all for, you know, the whole first 40 minutes here talking about this dependent origination, everything depending on everything else. So that's all conditioned. Whether this is an iron or that's all conditional, right? It can change just like that. The temperature of this air could change just like that because it's air conditioned. So conditioning is this idea of everything in our world be conditioned. How we see the world is conditional on our eyes, right? If I develop a, a cataract or something and start seeing floating rings around everything, right? That's conditional on my eye. Conditional upon conditional. But the, but the what's Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? What's the supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment of the Buddha? It's the unconditioned. Not dependent on anything. Not conditional in any way, shape, or form. Difference between conditioned, which is everything coming through the senses, everything that's a sensory object, whether even if it's a mental object, that's all conditional. And then Buddhism, or the state of Buddhahood, is interested in this unconditioned. The empty. The empty, Right? The signless, the wishless, and ultimately this wu wei or that which is without cause or causation or without action. Right? Everybody good there? Because this is actually still all last week's stuff. So I would love to get to a new idea tonight. Um, but this back, we have to go through this back and forth though because it's all cumulative in that way, right? So Manjushri, he's out, he's he's looking out for us, right? So he says, Manjushri asks, we're a honor one. What is the state of the unconditioned? Because remember, Manjushri just asked, what is the supreme unsurpassable enlightenment of the Buddha? And the Buddha just said, it's the unconditioned. And so Manjushri said, great, we're a honor one. What is the state of the unconditioned? The Buddha said, the absence of thought is the state of the unconditioned. That should be no surprise. I just told you, anything coming through sensory objects, the brain, mentation, all of that's off the table, right? Manjushri said, we're alone one. If the states of the unconditioned and so forth are the state of Buddhahood, which is, this is the big, um, the big like, wait, what did he just say? That the condition is the unconditioned, right? That's the, of this sutra, this is like unheard of dharma, where they're the same thing, right? So he says, we're alone one. If, if the states of the unconditioned and so forth are the state of Buddhahood, and the state of the unconditioned is the absence of thought, right? Let me get this straight, Buddha. If the unconditioned is the absence of thought, then on what basis is the state of Buddhahood expressed? 
If there's no such basis, then nothing can be said. And since there's nothing to be said, nothing can be expressed. Therefore, world under one, the state of Buddhahood is inexpressible in words. All right? By the way, this is the demonstration. They're not, they can't, they can't just tell you what Buddhahood is. So they will demonstrate it through this dialogue. Right? So, therefore, what are one? The state of Buddhahood must be inexpressible in words. The Buddha asked, Manjushri, where should the state of Buddhahood be sought? Where should one go looking for the state of Buddhahood? Manjushri answered, it should be sought right in the three kleshas, right in the defilements of sentient beings, greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are the, quote, defilements, the language of this sutra or this translator. They're referring to the three kleshas, the three poisons. And Manjushri answered, Buddhahood should be sought right in the defilements of sentient beings. And why? Because by nature, the defilements of sentient beings are inapprehensible. Realization of this is beyond the comprehension of Shravakas and Pratekya Buddhas. Therefore, it is called the state of Buddhahood. Right? So, just to, again, just to be very clear about what's going on here, it's a very subtle thing to grasp. But if you understood the empty nature of the shadow, which is the empty nature of all phenomena, and I could do it all night. I do it every night. Every Sunday night I'm here, breaking down the emptiness of all phenomena, right? And if you really understood, oh, you, you mean it's empty because it's dependently originated? Is that what you're saying? It's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And what this is saying is if you understand that mechanism, that dependent origination magic that's causing all phenomena, then you will see that even the kleshas are dependently originated. Your hatred is dependently originated. Your delusion, dependently originated. Your greed, dependently originated. And therefore, good news, equally empty, equally illusory, equally all of that. Right? But of course, that subtle dharma that I just dropped on you, right? Realization of that is beyond the comprehension of Shravakas and Praktekya Buddhas. Therefore, it is called the state of Buddhahood. The Buddha asked Manjushri, does this state of Buddhahood increase or decrease? Meaning, like, do I get more of it? Do I get less of it? All right? Manjushri answered, the, in, the state of Buddhahood neither increases nor decreases. The Buddha asked, how can one comprehend the basic nature of the defilements of sentient beings? How, how can I... Given everything you've just told me, Buddha, how am I to think of these defilements, right? The basic nature of the defilements, Manjushri says, is the basic nature of the state of Buddhahood. World honor one, if the nature of the defilements were different from the nature of the state of Buddhahood, then it could not be said that the Buddha abides in the equality of all things. It is because the nature of the defilements is the very nature of the state of Buddhahood that the Tathagata is said to abide in the equality of all things. Everybody follow me on this? Because we're still in last week, right? <laughs> but once again, 
The Buddha asked him further, so Manjushri, you're so smart about all this, in what equality do you think the Tathagata abides? Manjushri answered, as I understand it, the Buddha, the Tathagata, abides in exactly the same equality in which those sentient beings who act with greed, hatred, and delusion abide. The Buddha asked, in what equality do those sentient beings who act with the three poisons abide? They abide in the equality of emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. The Buddha asked, Manjushri, in emptiness, how could there be desire, hatred, and ignorance? Are you okay? How could there be shadow on the wall? How could there be greed, hatred, and delusion? How could there be these things? Manjushri answered, right in that which exists, there is emptiness, wherein greed, hatred, and delusion are also found. The Buddha asked, in what existent is there emptiness? In what existence is there emptiness? Manjushri answered, emptiness is said to exist only in words and language. Because there is emptiness, there is greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha has said, monks, non-arising, non-conditioning, non-action, and non-origination all exist. If these did not exist, then one could not speak of arising, conditioning, action, and origination. Therefore, monks, because there are non-arising, non-conditioning, non-action, and non-origination, one can speak of the existence of arising, conditioning, action, and origination. I just want to stop. We're about to get to some new stuff. Does everybody see what's going on? All that's being discussed here is sort of like what I spent the last hour discussing. Which that I, I have used shadows on the wall, I use bowls sometimes, I use all of the things of this world to show the emptiness. That's what's being discussed here, is that these, these, this state, the state of Buddhahood is right here. Emptiness is right here to be understood because it is, it is from the dependently originated out of the emptiness that we get shadows on the wall. It's how we get all phenomena at all. So there's this way in which this is just saying that you do not need to go to the mountaintop. You, need to, you don't go to Sri Lanka to the forest tradition. Their, their emptiness is just as empty there as it is here. If, if I were to try to make this um, more practical than it might sound. I know this sounds like really out there and, and there's a way in which it is really out there, but there's also a way in which the message of this is very practical, right? It's talking about how the emptiness other places is not any more empty than it is here. The dependently originated nature of all things is equal, whether it's a, a piece of lint, a Buddha, a, a whatever it is. And so anywhere is a place for practice in that sense. That's what's being spoken about here. And also, I, I mentioned this last time, this is also responding to the overly puritanical 
good, bad, wholesome, unwholesome nature of the Theravada, where they had fallen into such a dualistic trap of good and bad, wholesome and unwholesome, that they had sort of lost the wisdom of the middle path and all of that. And so when they start talking about the three poisons are Buddhahood or are the site of Buddhahood, this way of thinking is what leads to tantrism, vajrayana, using the defilements, using these things to one's advantage because the wisdom says, oh man, you're right. The three poisons and all these things, they have the same empty nature as all these things. So that's, again, this is an, um, even, there's a footnote here that says this seems to be a very early tantric text because of what it's uh, uh, kind of insinuating. Comment and question there, like, just where you ended where the non-rising exists, is this correct? Yes. Like, so, correct me if I'm wrong, like, in the beginning of the Shrikna, it seems like the emphasis is what rising does not exist in the origination. Mm-hmm. And now it kind of goes to non-rising that actually exists, like that. Hold on, because if, if I can do it, we'll get there. So hold on, because it's really a, an amazing part of this, right? Is everybody good, though, up until that point? Just on that note, just on that note about the non-arising exist, because it wouldn't, if there, it wasn't there, it could not have the arising, right? So there's a way that, that they're talking about that very, very philosophically. But I want you to also, they're also talking, this is going to seem lame. This is going to seem like, what? But think about this. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like how Ill- illogical, the idea of illogic or illogical is a necessary category of logic. You have, you have not transcended logic by talking about the illogical. You've actually fallen right into logic. Do you see what I was saying there? It's kind of a, it's kind of a dualism, but it's a little even it's subtle though. It's a very subtle thing about uh, I'm gonna forget to say it, so I'm gonna say it now regarding so Buddhism is yes, non-dualism, but I mean, it's its own branch of non-duality. And so I'm gonna drop on you a Zen saying, Zen Master Hui Nung, this is a Zen saying that. It, it explains all of this. And then we'll get back to Manjushri. Here's the Zen saying. There is absolutely no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's an enlightened person that understands that. Right? That is a very subtle form of non-dualism because mm-hmm. I'm denying duality I'm denying it That's the, therefore I'm stepping over into the non-dual realm I'm saying there is no difference between the conditioned and the unconditioned there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person it's 
enlightened person understands that. It is, and then that is the the um, the Dharma joy of uh, of a Zen saying like that that uses language and it uses your mind and the conditioning of your mind, and then these are the origin of koans to use the language, use your mind, use your conditioning, but then use it against you, because your logical mind is like. Well, then that would make an enlightened person. And you're telling me there's no such thing as an enlightened person or an unenlightened person. Exactly. And also, definitely, now that we are, this is some, sounded totally to me like a Pafariana text. Plus the fact that, and that's one of my favorite examples, that the difference between the enlightened person <coughs> is that he knows that there's no difference. And from my tradition, in Dzogchen, the only difference for, from an enlightened Buddha and a conventional being or whatever is not even a matter of knowledge or walking the path, but it's a matter of distraction. The Dzogchen answer to the problem of enlightened versus not enlightened is that you are just distracted from the fact that you are an enlightened being. So I think that's a also very elegant way to solve all of this conundrum <laughs> without too much effort, yes. more restful. <laughs> yeah. It's why Dzogchen and those are advanced teachings. Mm -hmm. there. Okay, so let me try to get to the new part. I'm skipping just one little bit, but the Buddha asked, so Manjushri, so to do all this that you're describing, you seem like, like a, such a smart bodhisattva, what should one rely upon for such right practice? Manjushri mentions that he's come to this realization through right practice, which is a reference, by the way, to the Eightfold Path and right action, right speech, right that. And so he says to Manjushri, Manjushri, what should one rely on for such right practice? Manjushri's answer is, he who practices rightly relies upon nothing. That's the practice. Right? The Buddha asked, does, does he not re practice according to the Noble Eightfold Path? Manjushri answers, if he practices in accordance with anything, then his practice will be conditioned. A conditioned practice is not one of equality. Why? Because it is not exempt from arising, abiding, and the perishing. All conditioned things arise, last, and cease. That's the nature of the conditioned world. And so if your practice is conditional in any way, shape, or form, it relies on something, right? The Buddha asked Manjushri. This is new territory, by the way. The Buddha asked Manjushri, are there any categories in the unconditioned subdivisions, sections, categories. Are there any categories of the unconditioned? Manjushri answered, world under one. If there were categories in the unconditioned, then the unconditioned would be conditioned and would no longer be the unconditioned. The Buddha said, if the unconditioned can be realized by aryas, by saints, then there is such a thing as the unconditioned. How can you say there are no categories in it? 
the Buddha's or Manjushri's answer is this: things have no categories, and the Aryas, the saints, have transcended all categories. That is why I say there are no categories. So this is just referring to conditioned uh, categories in here. Could be your lakshana qualities, marks, all of that. And so the Buddha is asking. Uh, are there any characteristics or qualities to the unconditioned? We're all on one. If there were any characteristics or qualities to the unconditioned, then it, the unconditioned would be conditioned. And it wouldn't, even be, it wouldn't be the unconditioned, right? And then he says that things have no categories and the saints or aryas have transcended categories. That is why I say there are no categories. The Buddha asked, Manjushri, would you not say that you have attained sainthood? Would you not say that you have attained Aryaship, Aryahood? Manjushri asked him in return. World Honor One. Suppose one asks a magically produced person, would you not say you have attained sainthood? What would be his reply? That's the Buddha's answers to Manjushri, right? Let's just say there was a phantasm of a person here, a dream fictional person, and you ask them about their attainment. What would they say? The Buddha answered Manjushri, one cannot speak of the attainment or the non-attainment of a magically produced person. Manjushri asked, has the Buddha not said that all things are like illusions? <laughs> the Buddha answered, so I have, so I have. Manjushri, if all things are like illusions, why do you ask me whether or not I have attained sainthood? The Buddha asked, Manjushri, what equality in the three vehicles have you realized? And by the three vehicles, and actually it's why I spent all earlier with my boats. The term three vehicles gets used a lot in Buddhism and it gets used uh, to refer to a lot of things. A lot of people will say that it refers to sort of Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. In this text, the three vehicles are the Shravaka vehicle, the Pratekya Buddha vehicle, and the Bodhisattva vehicle. All right? That's a path or a vehicle as well. And the Buddha asked, Manjushri, what equality in the three vehicles have you realized? I have realized the equality of the state of Buddhahood. The Buddha asked, have you attained the state of Buddhahood? Manjushri's answer, if the world honored one has attained it, then I also have attained it. Thereupon, Venerable Shabuti, the wise, a Shravaka, an Arhat, a star of the Diamond Sutra, of which this sutra has many, many references. Thereupon, Venerable Shabuti asked Manjushri, has not the Tathagata attained the state of Buddhahood? Or, I guess, hasn't the Tathagata attained, attained the state of Buddhahood? Right, so in response to that back and forth of, have you attained Buddhahood? Have you attained Buddhahood? Right? If, if, the, if the world honor ones attained it, then I've attained it. Thereupon, Venerable Shibuti pipes in and says, has not the Tathagata attained the state of Buddhahood? Manjushri asks him, have you attained anything in your state of Shravakahood? 
Shibuti answered, the liberation of an Arya, the liberation of a saint, is neither an attainment nor a non-attainment. Manjushri, so it is, so it is. Likewise, the liberation of the Tathagata is neither a state nor a non-state. This is your question. Shibuti said, Manjushri, you are not taking care of the novice bodhisattvas and teaching the Dharma this way. Manjushri asked, Shibuti, what do you think? Suppose a physician, in taking care of his patients, does not give them acrid, sour, bitter, or astringent medicines. Is he helping them to recover or causing them to die? Shibuti answered, He's causing them to suffer and die instead of giving them peace and happiness. Manjushri said, Such is the case with a teacher of the Dharma. If, in taking care of others, he fears that they might be frightened, and so he hides from them the profound meanings of the Dharma, and instead speaks to them in irrelevant words and fancy phrases, then he is causing sentient beings to suffer birth, old age, sickness, and death, instead of giving them health, peace, bliss, and nirvana. When this Dharma was explained, 500 monks were freed of attachment to any dharma and were cleansed of defilements and were liberated in mind. 8,000 devas left the taints of the mundane world far behind and attained the pure dharma eye that sees through all dharmas. 700 gods resolved to attain supreme unsurpassable enlightenment and vowed, in the future we shall attain eloquence like that of Manjushri. Okay, lovely place to stop. Questions, ideas, <laughs> comments. It keeps going and going. I swear we're, I swear we're really just like, we just know what is kind of going on now. In terms of what the sutra has to share and like what it really wants to tell us, this was all tonight just to even understand the realm in which they're speaking in that way, right? On that note, questions and ideas about this realm in which they're speaking. How it makes you feel, anything, really. Yep. So uh, you were saying earlier the Shrivaka Pass is really difficult and arduous, and then also saying it's sort of the end of that is the beginning of Bodhisattvahood. So like, how, how did those play? That's a tricky one to answer. Um, It's a tricky one to answer because this idea of renunciation, right? And this like really like serious move, like a real serious move, right? Like renouncing and like vows, vows of celibacy, vows of poverty, vows of homelessness and all of that. Like, That's a very, very serious move, in my opinion, very worthy. And as I teach it, of course, that's where Buddhism starts. That's that's what Buddhism is. If you're not celibate, homeless, 
and have no possessions, you're not a Buddhist in the early days because that's what it meant. That's all it meant practically was that you were celibate, homeless, and you begged. Like that was, that was it. Time goes on and these critiques start happening, these new movements start happening, this new philosophy starts happening, and at no point is that renunciatory path abandoned in the sense that it is always lauded, it's always supported, it's always considered to be like worthy, or you know, in that sense. Maybe in a middle pathy kind of way, the Mahayana says that that's too far this way. For the most part, though, it's more about how we will all in a way renounce eventually when we're ready kind of a thing. So there's that. And so there's, yeah, there's that where it just remains this sort of path unto itself and where this Mahayana comes from is mm, it actually if you want to read historians and stuff on this, this Mahayana movement came from two places. One from a much more uh, a bigger stronger, more vibrant householder Buddhist community or a lay Buddhist community. So the Bodhisattva now can be, in a way, the bodhisattva is one who doesn't necessarily have to renounce the home, family, all of that. And in some traditions, the bodhisattvas are far more exalted than the monks in that regard. So the first thing that seems to have brought about this shift is the a bigger lay movement. But I also, just to clarify that, Buddhism is also moving out of its epicenter in, in northeastern India, moving up north into what is today Afghanistan and Pakistan, moving south into southern India, Sri Lanka, over to southeast Asia. And as it moves, Buddhism is no longer just a group of renunciants. We're talking that by, by the year... Oh, man, I mean, by the year 200 B.C., easily, probably even earlier, but by 200 B.C., there are, in, like, effectively Buddhist kingdoms in Pakistan, what is today Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia. We're talking com communities, large communities, like large villages, large communities with kings who are Buddhist, Everybody in the community is a Buddhist, and they're actually creating little Buddhist utopias. That is where the Bodhisattva path of the laity comes from, is actually the development of, a, of Buddhism as a social system, not a system operating within a larger social system that supports renunciation and poverty through karmic reciprocity, Buddhism had grown so big that it was running nations. And so this whole Mahayana path is actually, once you really get into a lot of the sutras, you hear a lot more stuff about how to, uh, about um, uh, communal integrity, how to, how to create social cohesion, all of these things. The, 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 the Shravaka path and this, this is about them. This is about you, buddy. 
This is about how you get your enlightenment. And that's all it's about is you and your enlightenment. Versus this whole Mahayana is again about communities and utopic communities and all of that. So that's one origin of the Mahayana is a stronger laity, but not just stronger in its original context, huge. And then the second thing that happens is, is that th these bodhisattvas, these seem to have been um, some women and men who were not into this situation, meaning the church or the, the institution of Buddhism as it had become. They, I've said this before, it seems that in early the early schools, there started to develop a kind of like payola system where you could actually start making like indulgence type stuff where you can make some payments and now oh, I'm a once returner. How'd you get to be a once returner? I made a donation to the church. It's, it's like, wait a minute, you didn't meditate? No, I just made a donation. I'm, I'm a once returner. I'm, I'm going to go for non-returner next week as soon as I get my income tax return. So there seems to have been this whole thing where this turned into like a lot of problems and there was a group of people, again, men and women, who were like, didn't he tell us? Did what? Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll see you guys later. And so these bodhisattvas seem to have been some folks in the early days that were, they wanted to go for Buddhahood. Now, I don't want to be a follower in somebody's church. I'm going to go for Buddhahood. He, he told us how to do it. I'm going to go do it. I'll see you guys later. Right? And so that's where this uh, um, kind of bodhisattva path comes from. And by the way, I would love to do this. I don't know if I've answered your question at all. I've drifted <laughs> off so far. It started answering that. If I may, though, I was tempted. I was tempted at the beginning, you know, to draw my little bodhisattva vehicle boat. But I would really like to do it. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's so beautiful. This is the Mahayana, folks. The Mahayana is this beautiful story I'm trying to tell you all. It's the one that includes all of this. It's the discourse about all of this. That's the Mahayana. Of which, yeah, the Bodhisattvas are in it. And, the Bodhis and this vehicle is about, about moving towards Buddhahood. But if you understood everything I was talking about tonight, this inconceivable state of Buddhahood is, is it's rather unique in that way. Right? It's not just a good meditation session. Right? It's a radical rewiring of the mind to think in total, totally different terms. Right? Again, I don't, yeah, but I tried. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious um, how the practices on emptiness would vary between these three vehicles, or if they differ. If they're sort of different strategies for, um, you know, their uh, social or not social, political or not political ways of, you know, living, how it affects their practices on emptiness, mm -hmm. if they marry at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I know a little bit in that regard. Um, let me just distinguish it between a kind of early Buddhism, later Buddhism. Okay. And because the Pratekya Buddhas are this really, and just while I'm on that, these Pratekya Buddhas, these solitary Buddhas, 
this is a unique category in Buddhism that again, it's like, I, there's a lot of different ways that these are operating, the Pateki Buddha, but these also seem to be, how can I put this? Within the Mahayana view, and not everybody's gonna agree with this, but a lot of people probably would. Within the Mahayana point of view, like this particular Buddha allows for Jesus, allows for these other enlightened beings that didn't necessarily turn the Dharma wheel. So they're like, we Buddha, the Buddhism and the Buddha doesn't want to deny the wisdom of any other enlightened being out there. And so they'll speak of, yeah, oh yeah, that's a Pateki Buddha. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so I just want you to know that about it as well. And so that these Pateki Buddhas are unto, unto themselves. We could really try to do a whole class just on them. They're so, so weird. So rather than that, I will speak about the early form of meditation on emptiness that the Theravada meditation on emptiness seems to be a very like, um, well, it's a practice on particular objects. So it's a real exercise, it seems. And what I mean by that is, is that there's a process of sort of divesting objects of their qualities and characteristics and divesting objects of their meaning and significance and divesting objects of even their kind of their spatial or discrimination, like the way you're discriminating them spatially and all of that. And so the practice in the Theravada seems to be this real, like, almost like, I'm kidding, but only kind of. This practice of, like, staring at something long enough until it blurs out and disappears. Kind of a thing. Meaning that it was a real mind exercise, a practice of mindfulness. You choose an object. You go through this practice to divest it of all of its significance and meaning and characteristics to arrive at this emptiness. And then you really like sit and meditate on that emptiness. And that's great. That would be, that's a practice. What makes the Mahayana and the Bodhisattva path really different is that that practice is not so much like I'm in my meditation doing it. It's like trying to do it all the time, walking down the street as a constant practice in that way. And it's much more about like a kind of constant Vipassana exercise of examining the mind and seeing how it is, is it's, it's seeing the object and we all walked us through how it's all actually deeply interconnected, right? And so the bodhisattva path regarding emptiness is more about like trying to experience it all the time. And not that a bodhisattva doesn't do a seated practice at all, but it just seems that the whole Mahayana project is about turning the world into your zendo. Yeah, and I just said that. So that's probably a good place to, to call it. Yeah. Thank you all so much. We only got like a paragraph further along. And so you know what that means. Yeah, because I'm telling you, the places that I want us to see are just so special. So we're going to keep going on this as long as it takes. So until then, have a great week.